Right, Diane. Just that's as much as I'll embarrass you, Diane. Matt's brought has a guest with him, so thank you for being here tonight. And uh, if you have it, there should be some copies of notes on your tables. If there's not, we'll just share them around. But uh, we've been going through the books of the Bible, book by book, just to give an overview of each book of the Bible. By no means exhaustive, but just like a skeleton, so that when you come through the Bible yourself, you kind of know what you're looking at the next time you hit, let's say, the book of Hebrews. You have like a working understanding, and then you'll fill in the gaps. You know, when you build a house, you lay a foundation, you put up a structure, and once the structure is there and the house is standing, then you start putting all the stuff, the interior, the walls, the, you know, the, the, the trimmings. So we're laying like a rough structure now, and as you come through the Bible again and again and again, you'll start to be able to put your light fixtures in, your furnishings, uh, your fancy stuff. That, that's going to happen in time, but we just kind of lay the framework. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 13 to start, the last chapter of the book. <clears throat> 13 chapters, 300, just over 300 verses, almost 7,000 words. Uh, we're going to say the author is Paul. Uh, there is a lot of debate about the author of the book of Hebrews, and depending on who you read or waste your time reading, uh, you will see many different people saying, some will say it's Paul. Uh, I lean that way. Uh, my pastor leans that way. I think, I think it's pretty conclusive that way. But some want to say Barnabas wrote the book. Some say Apollos wrote the book. Some even say Luke wrote the book. Some people will say Silas wrote the book. Some people say Priscilla and Aquila wrote the book. So there's a lot of, a lot of different thoughts out there about who wrote the book of Hebrews. But if you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 23, know ye, not, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So it's very clear that the last chapter was undoubtedly written by Paul. I mean, he's mentioning Timothy, of course. So you could definitely say the last chapter may have been written later than the first 12. I mean, that, that's a reasonable supposition. And if you go to Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, um, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and this is, this is not my thought. I, I saw somebody say this, and it makes sense to me. Last chapter is clearly written by Paul, probably later. And the first 12 chapters probably written by Paul when he was in Arabia, early er in his ministry. Because, you know, he gets saved, and he goes out into Arabia, and the Lord kind of gives him all those doctrines. And if you look at Hebrews 1.1, it starts... God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So this letter does not open with Paul's name like all his church epistles. That's one of the reasons why people don't want to attribute it to Paul. Uh, because Paul would always start Paul, right? But this one starts God. He doesn't mention his name. Well, if Paul wrote this letter early, having come out of Judaism, it makes a lot of sense that he would have wanted to hide his identity. Because the Jews wanted to kill him. So if he's like, hey, I'm Paul of, Sarsus, of Tarsus, you know, and I'm writing this letter, they might have discounted it. So he keeps himself anonymous to kind of not detract from what he's trying to say. And of course, um, Usher dates the book of Hebrews approximately 64 AD, which would put it before the temple was destroyed, if we want to follow that date. So possibly written early in Paul's ministry, while he's still in Arabia, remember, he's at Mount Sinai getting doctrine directly from Jesus Christ. And of course, from Romans chapter 9, 
we learn that Paul had this burning desire for his kinsmen according to the flesh, right? Paul over and over said, I could wish myself accursed for my brethren, according to the, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He had such a burden for Israel that he was willing to go to hell to see them come to Christ. Now, I would be willing to maybe die for somebody to get saved, but I don't know if I would ever say, I'm going to hell for someone to get saved. I'm going to be honest with you. Take a bullet, just make it sure it's a good shot, and I'll go right to heaven. But, I mean, go to hell for somebody to get saved? That's the Spirit of Christ speaking through Paul, because Christ was willing to go to hell to see people get saved. And that's why Paul could say that through the Spirit of Christ. But if Paul's got such a burning desire... And he's there at the foot of Sinai, understanding the doctrines that he's known for many years. Wouldn't it be on his heart to reach out to his people and write them a letter to show them that Jesus Christ was their Messiah and he is their promised high priest? So that's a little bit. I mean, you could study that more out. But whoever you think wrote the book doesn't change a lot, right? You still end up in the same spot. You still got to deal with what the book says. So I think it's Paul. Um, if you want to think something else, that's fine. Uh, but it seems like Paul would have done it. There's many more reasons which we could go into. I mean, my pastor, Mike Veach, back in Staten Island, has been studying the book of Hebrews for several years now. I'm going to attempt to do it in one night, all right? So I'm going to just really skim the surface. Uh, the key word is better. Uh, Jesus Christ is pictured as our high priest, our great high priest, our intercessor. Uh, and if you look at Hebrews 4.14, I really think that's the key verse of the book. Um, really key note of the book. It says in Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest, because Israel had had high priests. I mean, Aaron, uh, you know, you can go down the list. You could read the genealogy of the high priest. Israel was not a stranger to the high priest. That was a key figure of the Jewish economy. But Jesus Christ is the great priest high priest, all right? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Well, there's something special about him. Jesus, the Son of God, that's something very special. Let us hold fast our profession. So he's pointing them to the great high priest, and that high priest, Jesus Christ, should provoke us to hold on. If we've got this great high priest that's up there in heaven, then wow, we shouldn't be given up. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. The key message is the superiority then of Jesus Christ. We're going to see tonight how Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament law, to the Old Testament economy, to all the old ways of doing things. Jesus Christ is better, superior. Um, now, the book of Hebrews is a potentially dangerous book. You know, the Bible's kind of like dynamite. <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing with it, you will blow your hands off, right? You know, you go out on July 4th and you play with fireworks, but, you know, back in the day when they had real fireworks like M80s and Blockbusters and Pink Elephants and, you know, you could blow something up really good, you know. If you didn't know what you were doing, you lost a finger or a hand or something that you needed later in life. And the Bible is very dangerous. It's very powerful. It's a lot more than a stick of dynamite. If you don't know what you're doing with it, you can hurt yourself and others. And the book of Hebrews is one of those slippery books because it's a transitional book. It's transitional in nature. So if you don't know kind of like where it fits in God's economy, you can pull things out of it that may not be directly applying to you, misappropriate some of it. So we got to put this book in its proper context. Now, the book of Hebrews is one of three uh, very dangerous books in your Bible, right? The three slippery books in your Bible are Matthew, 
Acts, and Hebrews. And a lot of Christians slit their proverbial throat on these three books. They, they botch them. They mess them up. They don't know what's going on. If something's transitioning, it's hard to put your finger on it because things are in flux. In the book of Matthew, we are transitioning from Old Testament to New Testament. To transition. God had not been speaking for 400 years. Now he's introducing this Messiah. Amen. The book of Acts is a transition now from Israel, the nation, to the church, the body of Christ. Right? Israel rejects Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and by Acts chapter 7, God starts to turn, and by the end of the book of Acts, Peter's not on the scene, the nation's not a big deal anymore, and Paul's in prison teaching about the kingdom of God. We pivot from the political kingdom that God is building in the Old Testament to the spiritual kingdom that God's building within the hearts of believers, the kingdom of God in the New Testament. But then the book of Hebrews is another pivot. (laughs) Because now we're going to pivot, because what's in the name? It's the book of Hebrews, right? So who's it written to? Hebrews. So we're going to pivot now. God's, uh, my handwriting is absolutely atrocious. I think that says church. I'm not sure if that was a U or an amoeba. All right, so church to back to the Hebrews. All right? So it's another transitional book. So... Matthew, Old Testament to New Testament, Acts, Israel to the body of Christ, Hebrews, church, back to the Hebrews. That means the doctrinal audience of the book of Hebrews are, wait for it, Hebrews who missed the rapture. Hebrews that have missed the church age and are going through the Great Tribulation. That is the doctrinal, immediate context of what's going on. Now think about it this way. Romans was a great book. We studied it some months ago. Romans is the book of doctrine for the church in this age. It starts all the church epistles. The first book is the doctrinal book, and then you've got Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and and Thessalonians and all those books that are written to the church, but Romans is the cornerstone because the Bible says the Scripture was given for doctrine first. Well, such it is with Hebrews. Hebrews is the doctrinal book that starts the general epistles. God starts to pivot in another direction here at tribulation time. So he starts with Hebrews, because much like Romans, Hebrews lays the doctrine for the nation of Israel going through the tribulation and preparing for the second coming of Christ as their Messiah. So just like Romans starts the church epistles, Hebrews starts the general epistles. And uh, think about this, from Romans to Philemon, Paul addresses 10 groups of people. 10 is the number of the Gentile. Sometimes he says two letters to Timothy, two letters to the Corinthians, but he addresses 10 groups of people. 10 is the number of the Gentile. Once those 10 are done, what does he do? He turns to the Hebrews. Because once the church age is over and God is done dealing with that church, which is predominantly Gentile, not exclusively, but predominantly Gentile, because blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And once God is done with the Gentiles and that church age program, he's turning back to his 
Hebrew program, his kingdom program, and he's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel, and that's where we are in the book of Hebrews. So does that make a little bit of sense? All right. If not, you could ask me at the end. I'll try to, I know I'm doing a, a drive-by and just hitting you and moving on. All right, so let's, um, so the way the breakdown is on your book, we'll kind of pick this apart. Uh, chapters one through the middle of four is the superiority of the person of Christ. Chapters four to 10, the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. And the chapters 10 to the close is the superiority of the follower of Christ or the, the life of following Christ. So a nice little breakdown. So let's, let's go through this. The way I'm going to go through this, because it's so vast and there's so many things, I pulled out some of the key ideas of the book of Hebrews, and I figured we're just going to focus on those key ideas and how they show the superiority of Jesus Christ. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to use these key words that seem to appear over and over in the book of Hebrews and use those as our guide to kind of maybe parse this book out a little bit. So the first key idea is you see the word perfect pop up a lot in the book of Hebrews. So the first big idea in the book of Hebrews is it presents us with things that are perfect. And when the Bible talks about the word perfect, it's not talking about the word sinless, right? It's talking about words that are, he he means complete. He means mature. He means finished, right? Everything in the Old Testament was basically incomplete and temporary. And Jesus Christ gave his people something finished, something complete, something mature. Let's look at some of those things that were perfect. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to stay really in the book of Hebrews and just flip all over it. So wet your fingers and get ready to flip with me, all right? Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. How do you like that, Calvinist friend? Uh, For it became him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So the first perfect thing I see in the book of Hebrews is a perfect Savior. A Savior who is complete, mature, finished. Nothing to add to Him, nothing to take away from Him, and He was made perfect through suffering. That's amazing. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, you'll see it again. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Because remember, the Jews were like, huh? You're going to go to a cross, Jesus? Huh? You're not going to ride in on your stallion and crush the Romans, Jesus? They didn't understand the sufferings of Christ. They only saw the glory that should follow. I mean, if you read the Old Testament prophets, you could see that Christ had to suffer, and you could see that there was glory. They just didn't understand it. They couldn't reconcile it, so much so that some Jewish writers think they were almost like two messiahs, right? One that would suffer and one that would reign. It was the same Messiah, but he had to suffer first and bring his glory second. And so the book of Hebrews opens with a Savior who was made perfect through suffering. It was all part of the plan. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Though he were a son, capital S, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. So if the Son of God had to be perfected as a man, so do the sons of God today, right? We are saved by the blood of Christ. It's finished. It's done, right? Amen? There's nothing you need to add to it. There's nothing that can take away from that. Jesus Christ said it's finished on the cross, but you're going through things in your life. Because what is God doing? He's perfecting you. 
Why? So that you could be a blessing to somebody else and be used of God. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God. He wasn't evolving as the Son of God. He wasn't less than the Son of God. He was the Son of God. But as a man, he hungered and sweat and wept and bled and felt pain and felt loneliness. Why? Because God was perfecting him to be a Savior for us. Amen? And that's a lesson. If he had to go through it, we have to go through it, right? Hebrews chapter 7, here's something else that was, he's a perfect Savior. Now, Eliezer wasn't a perfect, wasn't a perfect high priest, and Phinehas wasn't a perfect high priest, and Aaron wasn't a perfect high priest, but Jesus is a perfect high priest, right? He didn't fail. He never, you know, he wasn't like Aaron. Aaron failed. <laughs> Moses disappears for a little while, and Aaron's got them down there and basically a sick, perverted scene what's going around out the golden calf. They're not just dancing around that golden calf, okay? It was a crazy scene around that golden calf. And Aaron's like, uh, I don't know. I just stuck this thing in the fire and this thing came out. Really, Aaron? Really? Right? So Aaron failed. Jesus Christ didn't fail, right? He's a great high priest. He's a perfect high priest. Like Hebrews chapter 7, here's something else about him that was perfect. Well, that is perfect. If, 7-11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. I want to show you secondly that the book of Hebrews shows us that Jesus Christ instituted a perfect priesthood. A priesthood that was not ongoing and not incomplete. When Aaron died, somebody else became priest. When that guy died, somebody else became priest. And on and on and on. Jesus Christ came and said, no more priests after me. <laughs> I'm finishing it. I'm the perfect priest. He said, if the Levites were perfect, then why would I have to show up? <laughs> I showed up to finish what they couldn't finish. Because the law made nothing perfect. See, look at Hebrews chapter 9. I said we're going to be all over Hebrews. And I'm going to talk really fast to get this all in. Hebrews 9, 7. It says this, speaking about that day of atonement, right? Speaking about how in that Jewish feast, that high holy day in the Jewish economy, the high priest would take blood and enter into the holiest of all, enter into the presence of God himself and make an atonement for the nation. The whole nation hung on that high priest bringing the blood into the holiest of all one time a year. And how God's going to draw a parallel. He says in Hebrews 9, 7, but into the second, meaning the holiest of all, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure that's for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. See? It didn't complete it. The Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was a temporary coverage for your sin. It was temporary. That's why it had to keep going. That's why you had to keep renewing your policy so your coverage didn't get dropped. You had to keep going and bringing those offerings and bringing those sacrifices. It's like an insurance policy. If you didn't keep up the payments, you'd get dropped. You'd have no coverage. And God wasn't taking your sins away. He was covering them in the Old Testament right. so that He could look on you and not exercise His wrath. But you weren't cleared of your guilt. You were forgiven. 
It's a difference. You were forgiven, but not cleared. In fact, two times in the Old Testament, go to Hebrews 10.1. Look at this. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The Mosaic law could not take your sins away, could not perfect you, only cover you, only forgive you. Two times in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 7 and Numbers 14, 18, the Bible says that God was forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. He wasn't until the Lamb of God showed up, then John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. See, Jesus took the sin away and cleared you of that guilt and cleared you of that sin. Before that time, those sacrifices were just appeasing God's wrath and providing temporary coverage. But if you said, ah, fooey, I'm not going to the tabernacle. I'm not bringing an offering this time. Guess what? God said you could be cut off. You don't worry about that now. Jesus Christ finished it and made you perfect and not only forgave your sin, but took your sin away. Amen. Amen. That's a big, big difference. Look at 1014. Look what he says now. See this? For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. If you're in Christ... You are sanctified forever. You're perfected forever. I don't have to bring a lamb every, you know, I don't have to worry about the high priest making the day of atonement. I've already, Romans says in verse chapter 5, we've already received the atonement. I've already been forgiven, cleared, absolved, expunged. My record is clear. I've got Christ, I've got Christ's record. (laughs) I'm I'm as perfect as Christ is in the sight of God. Amen. Amen. So that's the first big thing. And when Jesus cried, it is finished, that meant... You could finally have something complete, perfect, mature, finished. That's the first big idea of the book of Hebrews. Second one is a second key word of the book of Hebrews. First one was perfect. Second one is heavenly. Heavenly. Hebrews shows us the heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, right, who's interceding in the heavens, right, in that third heaven. Hebrews has been nicknamed by some people the fifth gospel. Four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak of his earthly ministry. Hebrews speaks about his heavenly ministry and the heavenly things that he attends to as our great high priest. Let's look at some of them. Hebrews chapter 3. I said we're going to fly. All right, Hebrews 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. See, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his nation a heavenly calling, right? And literally, the Bible says in the tribulation, he will speak to them from heaven. So there's a real literal application to that in the years to come. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Just flip around with me. Again, we're just going to look at a lot of verses, right? It's Bible study, so we're going to study the Bible. And I'm going to try to cram two hours into 45 minutes. 6-4. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Jesus Christ let his people taste of the heavenly gift. Now, don't get thrown off by Hebrews chapter 6 or chapter 10 or chapter 3, where it looks like you could lose your salvation. 
Remember, this is a tribulation context. This is a kingdom of heaven context. In the kingdom of heaven, people might have tasted the gift. They might have seen the powers of the world to come. But And he's talking, not you. You are a part of that kingdom already. But he's saying some people tasted the heavenly gift. All right? Uh, go to chapter 8. Again, I, I'm not going to do a deep dive on any of these. I see some of your faces. But I'm just uh, doing a, a, a skim coat. 8.4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished by God of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. The earthly priesthood is only a shadow of heavenly things. That means what Moses built down here is some kind of symbolic representation of something that exists up there. So there's some heavenly things up there that were merely represented down here and the things that Moses built and then David was told to build. That'll blow your mind if you think about that for a while, but there are, there are heavenly things up there. The Bible talks about the book of Revelation, the temple in heaven being opened, right? So there's, there's some stuff up there, man. It's not just like, you know, fuzzy clouds in a river, all right? Um, look at chapter 9, verse 23. Bible says, set your affection on things above. There's some things up there that you'll walk on and walk through and be a part of. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Um, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Notice that only the blood of the Lamb of God could purify the heavenly temple. You brought the blood of bulls and goats to purify the earthly tabernacle and maybe the earthly temple. But when it came to the tabernacle or the temple up there in heaven, it had to be the blood of the Lamb of God, that sinless, pure blood that could purify those, those things. Hebrews 11, verse 16. Here's another heavenly thing. Speaking about those saints of old, but now they desire a better country that is an heavenly Hmm, what's he talking about? Let's jump to chapter 12. Let's read 12, 22. But you're come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the Old Testament saints were looking forward for a heavenly city, and we read about the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. Again, these are heavenly things. Hebrews is caught up with heavenly things, not necessarily earthly things. Third big idea, all right? Eternal. All right? Eternal. Because Jesus Christ is superior to the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, he gives Israel eternal blessings, forever blessings. <laughs> Not just temporary blessings down here, but eternal blessings up there. I'll show you some of those blessings, and maybe that'll get you a little bit of shouting or a little bit of happy. I don't know. I don't know if I'm even going to finish this. I've got to be honest with you. All right? Mm, oh, yeah. Let's keep going. Hebrews 5.9, right? Hebrews 5.9 talks about, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. Now remember, great tribulation context. 
to those who obey Him. So there's this works-based element of salvation that's going to be a big part of the tribulation uh, time. 9.12, here's something else eternal in 9.12. 9.12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal Redemption for us. Amen? Eternal redemption. Possible because Jesus Christ purchased it with His own blood. How about 9.15? Here's another one that's eternal. 9.15. And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ makes it possible for Hebrews and his people to have an eternal inheritance because he's the tester, right? He left his last will and testament. He dies so that you might receive an inheritance. Somebody dies, right? They leave a last will and testament and they give you the TV or the dog or maybe the car or the house. Jesus Christ died. He left you some eternal inheritance, right? That's what he purchased with his blood. Fourth big word, all right? I'm breaking up a sweat. Whew. I'm flying here. All right. As the last high priest, Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ sat down. We see that phrase in the book of Hebrews, sat down. No priest in the Old Testament could sit down. There's a lot of furniture in the tabernacle. There was no chair because there was no rest in the Old Testament law. Right? Look at, uh, there was no chair in the tabernacle because, remember that priest, you, you find about, you read about one priest that sat down, Eli, he broke his neck, right? He wasn't supposed to be sitting down. He brought the, God let him break his neck, uh, a judgment upon him. Hebrews 1.3, ready? Hebrews 1.3. Speaking about Jesus Christ says, <clears throat> who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had, now watch this, if anybody thinks Jesus has a co-mediatrix, or somebody had to help him out, by himself purged our sins, look what he did, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. After Jesus Christ, what? Finished the atonement, he could sit down. No other priest could. Nobody else could. You had to come the next guy. Oh, who's a, so there's a line out there. We got a line today, Eli. All right, you know, who's got the turtle doves and who's got the lambs, right? Because they were constantly bringing offerings. They couldn't sit. There was no rest. Nothing was finished. Jesus Christ says, it is finished. He goes up to heaven. He presents what he has to do. And you know what it is? He sits down. Amen. I mean, could you imagine the scene in heaven when he did that, right? Nobody had ever sat down. He sits down, and everybody knows that God is pleased. God is satisfied. The atonement is done, Amen. right? Now we just enter into that rest, right? If you're trying to work your way to heaven, you know what you need to do? You need to rest. You need to, you should, don't work when God says rest, and don't rest when God says work. And right now, when it comes to your salvation, you're supposed to rest. You're supposed to rest in Him. Right? What did Jesus offer his nation? Rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? He was talking literally. He was going to give that nation rest. Now, that rest is, he doesn't sit forever. Hebrews 1.13. Look how long he's going to sit. 
But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Jesus Christ is only going to sit until it's time to stand up and judge his enemies. He's quoting Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms, I think, in all the New Testament, is Psalm 110. Sit thou at my right hand until, oh, until, I guess me excited, until I make your enemies your footstool, right? They're going to be right under your feet. He's going to squash them like grapes, right? That's what it says. And uh, that's why, that's why it's so significant that in the book of Acts, Stephen the martyr says, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That's not Jesus standing to receive a martyr. Because if he had to stand every time somebody got martyred or died for Christ, Jesus Christ would be up and down all the time. No, he was standing because at that moment he could have come back and instituted his kingdom. But God did something. He kind of just went, Pause, and he brought in this church age that nobody saw and was a mystery that we Gentiles could get in. But at that moment right there, God says, Israel, you've rejected me once, twice, third strike, you're out. And, God, and Stephen sees him. And God records that in the Bible to let you know that God right there could have moved on with his kingdom. He could have come back with all that wrath, crushed his enemies, and instituted his kingdom. But he did something special called this church age to bring the Gentiles in. But you have to understand, he's sitting until he stands to judge. And Stephen seeing him stand is a very key moment in your Bible, if you understand that turning point. Right? Next big word, all right, is the word once. All right? Number five, once. Again, I'm just, I'm just organizing all these things. There's so much going on in Hebrews, I thought I'd just do it around these key words. All right? Because Jesus Christ is better than the Old Testament law, he only had to do things once, right? If you do the job right, you only got to do it once, right? That's what my mom says. Hebrews 7, 26. Here's some things he did once. Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests, meaning the earthly high priests under the Jewish law, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ only had to offer himself once, not over and over like the law. Right? One offering. Look at chapter 9 and go to verse 24. All right? For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. What's down here is a representation of what's up there. Uh, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once... In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now the high priest in the Old Testament law went into the holiest of all once a year. Jesus Christ went into the presence of God only once. Amen. I wish some people would get this. 
I wish some people that are dear to our hearts, friends and relatives trapped in religion would not think that you have to do this over and over and over again. Jesus Christ said it is finished because he only had to do it once. We don't repeat that. You can't sacrifice him again and sacrifice him again. and Imagine if your son died in war and you say, you know what? I built this little, you know, I, I come by and name the street after him. I like to remember by looking at the street. Oh, no, we're not just going to remember him. We're going to kill him over and over and over again. Right? You'd be a little offended by that, right? You want to kill my son over and over and over again? No, he died once. The father was so upset by that that he turned away, put the lights out, didn't want to look upon his son in that condition, had to cut him off and had to make him a sinner, so much so that the son had to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you're telling me that you want to replicate that every week and think that God is pleased with that? I'm going to shame the son. I'm going to bring up that horrible time when he became a curse every week when he says he did it once for all forever. Can you kind of get the father's mind on that? You know, you know, having a son that went through cancer, I don't want him to go through that horrible time over and over and over again now that he's overcome it. And you think that God is pleased with somebody just saying, we're going to kill him again. We're going to kill him again. Hey, let's kill him again. Let's kill him twice today. No, God says no. And I'm exaggerating to make the point to you. We're so like, we think it's so normal because religion has normalized it. It's abnormal to God to think you're sacrificing Jesus every week. Amen. It's abnormal to the Bible to think you have to sacrifice. And what exactly, and I'm not picking a fight, but I am. What is an unbloody letting at Calvary? Without shedding of blood is no remission. So you're killing him without blood every week, without blood, when it's useless, but you're doing it every week. Because why, again? Tell me. Where's your verse for that? Think about it, would you? All right. Um, I got on the thing. Uh, 28. So Christ was, I mean, it's so plain as day. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? <laughs> if the Old Testament law could do it, why'd they keep doing it? Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen. Right? You're born once physically. You need to be born once again spiritually. You weren't born a hundred times. There was one day where you were born on your calendar. And guess what? To get born into the kingdom of God, you need to be born again one time. Not over and over and over and over again. Right? Once. Last key, amen. Last key word, all right? Better. And this is really the, the, the most important key word. That's why I put it on your sheet of the whole book, right? Because the book of Hebrews is really presenting Jesus Christ as something or someone better than the Old Testament, better than the law, better than anything Israel had known. Let me show you some of the things he's better than. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 4. We're going to flip through these and then do a little conclusion here. All right? Hebrews 1, 4. Number one, being made so much better than the angels. Right? Jesus Christ is better than the angels. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Remember, this is a tribulation context. There is a lot of angelic activity in the tribulation, good and bad. 
And Jesus Christ is better than the angels. God wants you to know that. Uh, how about chapter 6, verse 9? Not just better than the angels, but here's what he's given you as well. 6, 9. 6, 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Right? So the Lord Jesus Christ offers his people better things. Amen? Hasn't, hasn't he given you better things since you've been saved? Amen. Better things than you've known before? He says those accompany salvation. Better things. How about chapter 7, verse 19? Chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope. Jesus Christ gave people a better hope, a hope based on a resurrection from the dead. That you weren't just afraid of the, the priest dropping dead. If that priest dropped dead in the, in, the, in the holiest of all, you were sunk. No, he didn't just die. He came back. He rose again. That gave us a better hope. Amen. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. That better hope is an assurance that there's a better testament. Because Jesus Christ died, and now we know he resurrected. That means... He's going to make good on all his promises. Everything he put in the will, I know I'm going to get because it's based on the fact that he rose again from the dead. He didn't stay dead. That means God was pleased with the atonement. It is finished. God was satisfied. Or else he would have left him in the grave. But the Bible says that Romans chapter 1 says that was a declaration of his holiness. The fact that he rose again from the dead. God said, ho, ho, that's the man. That's the man. Acts chapter 17 says, God commendeth all men everywhere to repent. He says, that's the man. And he gave you assurance and that he hath raised him from the dead, right? Gives you an assurance of that testament, right? Chapter 8, verse 6 is something else that's better. But now he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. <laughs> a mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. Chapter 9, verse 23. I've read this verse already, so I'm just going to pick out at the end. 9.23 mentions... Better sacrifices. Jesus Christ purified those heavenly things with better sacrifices, not bulls and goats and all that blood. No, just the blood of his son. A better sacrifice than anything anybody could give or bring or find. Chapter 10, verse 34. 10, 34. <clears throat> For he had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Jesus Christ blesses his people with a better substance that will last because nothing down here lasts. Everything is fleeting. Everything you could see and touch will be, could be gone tomorrow. But he has an inheritance reserved in heaven for you that fadeth not away. Right? Look at chapter 11, verse, 30, uh, verse 16. 11, 16. But now they desire a better country. <laughs> Jesus Christ is bringing a better country. You know what he's bringing? He's bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Amen. You think about that. Now, you may love your country. I think it's good to, to love your country. I'm not saying to hate on that. But it's nothing like the country God's got. Amen. I mean, the kingdom of heaven will be the rule of heaven on earth. That's what he told his disciples to pray. On earth as it is in heaven. That's a kingdom prayer. Could you imagine earth being ruled the way God conducts business in heaven? Man, you'd say that would be like 
heaven on earth. Right? Isn't that an expression? Well, guess what, folks? One day it's going to be Amen. heaven on earth. Amen. And that's what they were seeking and desiring. Everybody is. Amen. Everybody is. Amen. Whether you're religious or not, whether you're a Bible believer or not, you're looking for heaven on earth. You want to call it a golden age. You want to call it a utopia. You want to call it a third Reich. Whatever you want to call it, everybody's looking for some kind of utopia, some better thing to come. The Bible describes it. That's in the heart of man because God says, that's part of my program. That's the climax of my Bible is the second coming of Christ to bring in heaven on earth. You, right? And then chapter, verse 35 of the same chapter, last better thing. It says, women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Those who follow Jesus Christ will enjoy a better resurrection. You know, I know you live your life and you see other people doing their own thing. And you even say, you see some other Christians might just do their own thing. Guess what? You follow the Lord. Guess what? When he calls us up, you'll have a better resurrection. You'll be happy you laid this life down because what he's got waiting for you is better than anything you could fathom. You look at verse 38. You know what he says about those people that were whipped and sawn asunder and faced the hardship and and doctrinally of the Antichrist? But we know about all the martyrs of days of old, people that have given their lives. Even today, people all over the world are suffering for Christ. You know what the Lord says of them in that little parenthetical? Of whom the world was not worthy. That's how God feels about his people who suffer. He says, the world isn't worthy of them. And if that's how the Lord feels about his people, what do you think he's got waiting for them? A far better resurrection. Amen. Amen. So let me give you, now that I just did like a Gatling gun at you of everything, let me give you one big idea to go home on. We'll look at a bunch of verses, but one big idea for the book of Hebrews. All right? Here it is. The cure for faint-heartedness, quitting, backsliding, is a right understanding of the glory and work of Christ. I'll say that again. The cure for faint-heartedness and backsliding is a right understanding of the glory and work of Christ. That's the big idea that we could take home on the book of Hebrews. Now think about it, Hebrews, Israel, the Jews, that remnant, they may have missed the rapture, but God's saying, you didn't lose everything. And the Lord focuses on the glory and the work of Christ and then the life that we should live because of it, in light of it. All right, that's the way the book is broke. That's another way we could have broken the book down, but I want to save that for the ending, right? If we're going to take that idea, how the cure for faint-heartedness is a right understanding, think of the book this way. The first chunk of the book is the argument. It lays out how much greater Jesus Christ is than all these things that those people followed. This would be chapters 1, to chapter 10, verse 18, would be the argument. Let me show you what Jesus Christ is greater than. Look at Hebrews 1. All right, we'll flip through some verses and then we'll be done. Hebrews 1. Greater than everything Israel had in the past. What did they have in the past? They had prophets in the past, didn't they? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah, right? Great prophets would come and tell them the word of God. You know what the first thing God says in Hebrews is? Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. 
God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. God's last word is Jesus Christ. Sorry, cults. Just shot you out of the water right there. Joseph Smith, Charles Russell, Ellen G. White, Mary Baker Eddy, Muhammad, right? Name the one. What'd they all get? Extra revelation. Oh, no, I. Joseph Smith said, I'm the last prophet. Charles Russell said, I have the revelation. Ellen G. White said, no, I got this light. Mary Baker Eddy said, I have this insight. Muhammad said, I got this Koran. God said, sorry, I stopped with my son. He's the last prophet, Right? You're out of luck. <laughs> False doctrine always adds to God's word. Jesus has the final say. So that sounds very exclusive. Absolutely. <laughs> Truth is exclusive. Two plus two is four. That's the only right answer. There's a million wrong answers. There's infinite wrong answers. One right answer. Jesus is the answer. Everybody else is wrong. I know it sounds arrogant, but that's just the Bible truth. Everyone else is wrong. Jesus is God's final say. He's the last prophet. He's greater than all the prophets. You know what else he is? One eight. Number two, he's greater than the angels. I mean, there's angels all over the place in the Old Testament. There's angels at Jesus' birth. There's angels at Jesus' in the garden. There's angels over here. There's angels making announcements. There's, I mean, there's angelic activity all over the Jewish economy. Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. Amen. Hebrews 1.8 says, But unto the Son, capital S, he saith, Thy throne, O God... That's the Father talking to the Son, calling Him God. Amen. Is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He was God Himself. I don't know how some of our friends miss that. If you want to think Jesus is not God, how do you handle that verse? Why would God call God God if He wasn't God? You got it? <laughs> Number three. How about 3.3? Three, three? Hebrews 3.3. Three, three. Again, just think about this as a Jew. Think about this as a Hebrew. He's greater than the prophets. They had prophets. He's greater than the angels. They had interacted with angels. I mean, Abraham. I mean, uh, these guys, everybody's rolling up on an angel. Angel over here, angel over there. Here an angel, there an angel, everywhere an angel. Right? There's angels everywhere. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. You know else he's greater than? Hebrews 3. This is a real powerful one. He's greater than Moses. And Moses, there's more about Moses than anybody else in the Old Testament. Hebrews 3.3 says, For this man, speaking of Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. <laughs> Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. Look at verse 5, because you know why? He's not just a servant like Moses. He's a son. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Verse 6, But Christ as a son over his own house. That's a difference. Moses was a servant. Jesus was the Son of God. Number four. Chapter four. You know who else he's better than? He's greater than Joshua. Now Joshua was a mighty general. Never lost a battle. Mighty general. Amazing leader of Israel. But he failed. Israel fell apart. <laughs> they didn't last more than a generation or so after he was gone. Hebrews 4.8 says, For if Jesus... That's talking about Joshua, because another name for Joshua is Jesus. For if Jesus had given them rest, he's speaking about the Jews back there, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So Jesus Christ is greater than Joshua, because Jesus Christ will lead Israel into eternal rest. Amen. Joshua crossed the River Jordan 
and fought the Battle of Jericho, guess what? Jesus Christ is going to cross that same river, and it's not just going to be a temporary thing. He's going to bring in a kingdom that's going to last forever. He's going to do what Joshua couldn't do because he's greater than Joshua. And lastly, chapter 4, verse 14, he's greater than Aaron. He's greater than any high priest. <laughs> Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Hey, he's the only priest you'll ever need. Because you know when Aaron died, you know what they did to him? They buried him. And then when the next priest died, you know what they did to him? You want to guess? They buried him. You know what happened when Jesus Christ died shortly thereafter? He passed into the heavens. And the angel said, he's not here, right? He's not here. He's not here for he is risen as he said, right? That's a special, you know, I remember going to St. Peter's years ago. And there's statue after statue after statue of people that are all dead. What about the one that rose from the dead? That's the one that, that's the priest we need. And that's what he's saying. He's greater than all those people. So God takes all these, all these instruments of the Jewish economy that was so important to the nation of Israel, and he says, I gave you something better. Now, because I gave you something better, here's the application. Here's how you keep yourself from quitting. Here's how you keep yourself from giving up. Here's how you keep yourself from fainting. Right? All right, run with me now. Let me show you these 12 things that God tells his people to do now that they know who Jesus Christ is. What kind of life should we live because of the life and work of Jesus Christ? How should we respond because we have this great high priest who's greater than anything we've ever known or had? Right? 6.1. He says, first, let us go on unto perfection. You know what he's saying there? Number one, let's grow. Let's let our faith mature. Let's increase. Let's overcome. We've got the Jesus of the Bible. We've got the one who's greater than everything else. Let's go. Number two, look at chapter 10. And again, you just jot notes if you want or just listen. I'm just going to skim through these. Chapter 10, verse 22, he says, let us draw near. You know what the second thing we got to do is? You got to get close. If God did all this so you could approach unto Him, then don't stay far away from Him. Get as close as you can to Him. Number three, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Right? He's saying, hold fast. He's saying, don't abandon this book. Think about it. In the Great Tribulation, two-thirds of Israel will follow the Antichrist. So put that admonition in context, saying, guys, don't give up what you know is true. We can say that to ourselves. Now, spiritually, they're doing it for their very lives then, right? But don't abandon what you know is true. You've got something greater than anything that was before. Look at chapter uh, 10, verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're supposed to consider one another, be considerate of one another, because we have this Savior who is considerate of us. You know what he says in 24? It's connected to 25. Be considerate by being around each other. How can you really provoke one another if you're not around each other? How can you consider one another if you always drop out of church every time you got something better going on on your your schedule and your planner? Right? He's saying, consider one another by being around each other and provoking each other. Then he says in verse um, 35, 
He says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while tribulation, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, the son of perdition, title for the Antichrist, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He's saying, continue. Don't give in to the Antichrist. That's the doctrinal meaning there. Don't go into perdition. Don't follow the son of perdition. You'll be lost. But spiritually, hey, don't give up on Jesus Christ. Don't give up on the things you know are true. There's the doctrinal, and we could take some spiritual from it. Verse chapter 12. You want to know what else you should do? Lay aside the weights. 12.1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sins which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Just let go of the things that are dragging your walk down. It's hard to run a marathon with 70 pounds of weight strapped to you. I know Jason Mancini does it, but it's, it's hard for the rest of us, all right? You gotta like drop the weights, right? I was involved in something when I was saved years ago. I was coaching a team at my school, you know, a, a, the speech team. I know I'm a nerd, but that was like my thing. I loved it, I ate it, I breathed it, I slept it. You know what it was? It wasn't bad. I made a lot of great relationships with some of the kids, but you know what it was? It became a weight. And now, at my new school, hey, you want a coach? No. Nope. <laughs> nope. Because I know me. I'll be, I'll be like locked in, like crazy town, USA. So I got to let the weights go, you know, because I'm trying to run a race here. Um, 1228. Ask my daughter how crazy I am, all right? Ask my daughter how crazy I am. I live vicariously through her basketball career and my son's basketball careers. I'm like watching film this afternoon saying, you got her. You could take her in the next game. Just, I'm crazy. I know myself. You got to know yourself a little bit. If you know you're given to something, you have to drop the weight. Drop the weight. 1228. You know what else you got to do? Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. He's saying, guys, endure unto the end. He's saying the kingdom is coming. Again, that is the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24. That's the gospel being preached during the tribulation. That's doctrinally applicable to them. But for us, just keep going. Endure. There's a reward waiting for you. 13.1. Here's the next thing. Let brotherly love continue. Keep loving each other. They were going to need that in the Great Tribulation as they're being hunted by the Antichrist. And you know what? As the world gets scarier and scarier, we're going to need to love each other more and more as we experience our own personal tribulation. You know what? There shouldn't be any of that hate in here. There should be love in here. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love continue. 13.5, you know what else? He says, let your conversation be without covetousness. He says, be without covetousness. Why? Because the Antichrist will be preying on that. In the tribulation, he'll be saying, hey, you can't buy or sell unless you have this thing, this mark. They're going to be given to idolatry. The Bible says covetousness is idolatry in the book of Colossians. Why do you think he says that? Because they're going to worship a false idol because they want stuff. He says, don't give in to that, guys. Be content with what I give you, with the daily bread I give you. Amen. We could take plenty of spiritual things from that. How about 13.13? 13? Then he says, 
13.13. Rebels for God right here. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. He says, go forth. We can't hide from the shame of being his forever. Guys, you're going to have to bear the shame. So let's get out there. We're not supposed to live in our little commune with our little compound, with our walls and our powdered food and our bottled water and just wait for the Calvary to come. We've got to go out there into the world and be salt and light. He says, let us go forth like Jesus Christ went forth. And then he says, finally, verse 15, the last thing that you could do now that you know how great Jesus Christ is, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The Lord wants us to be thankful. And if you know how great Jesus Christ is, you'll be thankful that you know him. So that was the... My meager attempt at the book of Hebrews. Hope you got something out of that. Uh, do want to uh, continue to pray for Deborah's situation. I forgot to mention it before, but her mom, you know, her mom's got dementia and it's just getting a little, little crazy at, in the house. You know, mom's a little volatile and can't be left alone. So do pray for Deborah for wisdom and understanding about how to tr- deal with her mom and try to be a blessing to her mom and, and just make the right decisions for her mom. But thanks for being here tonight. Hopefully we'll see you at some of these things the next few days. And... Uh, That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. And we just ask, Lord, in Jesus' name that you could just take, Lord, this rapid fire. I know it was a lot of information, but I pray, Lord, something we took out of it would just help us to endure, even if it is just realizing how great you are and how we just can't quit because you were so great for us. Let that be the thing that resonates with us, Lord. And just give Deborah wisdom, Lord, how to just deal with her mom and minister to her mom. I pray you'd calm her mom's spirit, Lord, help her to be more manageable and more... uh, uh, you know, willing to, to kind of just take Deborah's advice and counsel, Lord, if Deborah has to make a decision about maybe a place to let her stay, Lord, just give her wisdom and understanding and open those doors. We pray those things now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.